we're in verses 18 through 38 again. Last week I preached to you from Luke 1, 18 through 38. And we walked through, we actually exposited the passage. We walked through the text together. And as we walked through the text, uh, we made note of several points where I told you this is important, but we don't have time this week. I'm going to reference it next week. Uh, theological issues, prophetic issues, cultural issues, things that you need to know, but things which we didn't really have time, and it wasn't quite in line with our focus last week. Last week, we, we did a comparison and a contrast, remember, between the faith of Zacharias, the priest, and the faith of Mary when each one was confronted with the announcement by the angel Gabriel about a child being born. Zacharias uh, had the announcement that he would, his wife would, would conceive and would have a son named John and that he would be the forerunner for the Messiah. Mary had an announcement that though she was a virgin and she had never uh, known a man, yet she was also going to conceive and have a child and that child would be the Messiah. He would be Emmanuel. He would be God in flesh. He would be the Son of God. And as we compared and contrasted, we recognized that Zacharias responded with kind of a, I need more proof, angel that just appeared before me and is making this announcement, uh, giving me the word of God. I, I, I'm not convinced I need more proof. So the angel says, well, I'll give you more proof. You won't be able to speak until everything that I've promised to you comes to pass. Mary, on the other hand, says, how can these things be? She doesn't ask for proof. She just says, um, I've never had intercourse. How am I going to have a child? The angel explains the power of God would overshadow her, that the thing inside of her would be conceived of the Holy Ghost. And then she says to the angel, be it unto me according to thy word. She believed. And so we, we focused on faith last week and what it truly means to believe and to take that extra step in our faith. Zechariah was still blessed with the child. But he lost spiritual blessing. Because he wouldn't take the Lord at his word. Now this week we're going to be considering the same verses. Just a couple of them. And as we do so, we're going to dig deeper into some of the elements that as a person reading in that time period... There would have been perhaps some familiarity with, particularly in the Jewish culture. Now, Luke was not writing to a Jew. He was writing to a Roman official. We don't know how much the Roman official would have understood, but Luke does not go out of his way to explain some of these significances. And yet, in Matthew, we see a little bit more information as Jesus is connected deeper to the Messiah. And we're going to talk about a few of those important elements this morning. So it's going to be a little bit more academic this morning than some other weeks as we we give you some context, but I trust that it's also going to be extremely profitable to you that as you're reading through Luke and you just come across these little things, such as where Jesus would be born, where Jesus' family came from, why a virgin, why espoused. There's going to be a fullness, a richness to your understanding, Lord willing, after we talk about some of these things this week. So we're just going to consider this element through five questions, five considerations this morning as we look back at some of the verses we exposited next week. So I reference you first to verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. And the scriptures tell us, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now we mentioned just in passing during our exposition that the text doesn't really go out of its way to tell us 
where Zacharias and Elizabeth lived. We'll find out next week that uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in the hills of Judah. Most likely, therefore, uh, they lived in or around Hebron. But we don't really know, and the text doesn't go out of its way to tell us. And yet Luke goes out of his way to tell us exactly where Mary was. And he will continue to go out of his way as we look through the, the account of Jesus and his early years, go out of the way to remind us that he lived in Nazareth. Not just the region of Galilee, which would have been north of Judah, but specifically in the city of Nazareth. Now, again, as I mentioned, the synoptics, the other Gospels that correlate with Luke, Matthew and Mark in particular, give us a little more insight into this. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, we read this. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now this is to be distinguished from a Nazarite. A Nazarite was a person who would take upon him a vow, and the Nazarite vow was a temporary vow most of the time. We talked about it a little bit when we considered John the Baptist, who was to be a Nazarite from birth. A Nazarite was a man who was sanctified unto the Lord, so he would take a vow, and during the time of his vow, he would not cut his hair, he would not touch anything unclean, he would not consume any, anything fermented, whether that be um, alcoholic, he would not consume anything of the fruit of the vine, um, even if it was not fermented, he would not consume vinegar, and these were sanctifying elements that he would do in order to set him apart for a time unto the Lord. And we, had, we saw in, in history really only a couple of men who were called to be lifelong Nazarites. Samson in the book of Judges, Samuel in the book of 1 Samuel, John the Baptist are three that we have identified as likely being those who have been called on by God to be lifelong Nazarites. From birth, they were not to cut their hair. From birth, they were never to touch anything unclean. From birth, they were never to consume any sort of alcoholic beverage. Uh, they were from birth sanctified unto the Lord for a particular ministry. And in being sanctified, uh, the Holy Ghost rested upon them uh, unto, unto ministry in a unique way. So that's not what we're talking about. It, the text doesn't say that Jesus was a Nazarite. The text tells us that Jesus was a Nazarene. Now, interestingly enough, we do not actually, if we were to go back into the Old Testament, find a specific prophecy referenced that references the Messiah as being a Nazarene. The only place that we find as far as the Messiah and locations is that he would be born in Bethlehem. Behold, Bethlehem Ephratah, though there'll be little among those in Israel, yet out of thee shall come one who shall rule. And, and so the idea being that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, and the Jews had very pointedly identified that prophecy as speaking to their Messiah. But as we consider the statement, though we don't see a direct reference to turn back to in the Old Testament saying, he shall be born, in, or he shall live in Nazareth, or he shall be a Nazarene, there is a prophetic play on words here that we can identify and recognize where Matthew is going with this prophetic fulfillment. It's important that we understand how New Testament writers understood Old Testament prophecy, and in fact how the Jews understood Old Testament prophecy. It was not always direct one-to-one -one correlation. Now that is the most prevalent, that there is a direct prophecy in the Old Testament that you can see work out directly 
at some later date. And we see many of those in the New Testament. Uh, in those cases, we can go back to a specific passage of Scripture, and we can one-to-one -one relate the elements of prophecy and say, yes, this prophecy was fulfilled in this exact way. That would be things such as Jesus being born in Bethlehem. That's a direct fulfillment of a direct prophecy. Of Jesus being born of a virgin, that's a direct fulfillment of a direct prophecy. Of, of Elijah coming before the day of the Lord, that's a direct fulfillment of a direct prophecy. And so the majority of prophetic fulfillments are that way. They're of that kind. There's a one-to-one -one promise fulfillment. But, but along with that, there's also various other types of prophecy. There's what we might call cumulative prophecy, where there's little snippets here and there about the character of Messiah or about what would happen. And when a New Testament writer is writing about the fulfilled prophecy, they don't have a specific passage in mind. They have a specific Old Testament concept in mind. So oftentimes, instead of the, the New Testament writer saying, as Isaiah said, or as Elijah said, or as Hosea said, or as Amos said, he would say, as the prophets said. And he would say it that way. He'd, he'd designate the prophets as being the ones who said this, because there's not really any direct prophetic fulfillment to what they're saying as a, as a prophecy. It's more or less just a lot of little snippets in the Old Testament that kind of accumulate into one prophetic idea that is then fulfilled in the New Testament. So there's that direct prophecy, there's what we might call cumulative prophecy, and then there's also indirect prophecies. And these indirect prophecies are where statements are made in the Old Testament, but they manifest themselves in a very subtle way in its fulfillment. Something that, unless you really are studying the Hebrew text and you understand how the language works, you never would connect the concepts. It's a prophecy based on language more than it is based on, on meaning to, to something. And, and this is one of those instances. Why would Jesus be called a Nazarene? There is no direct prophecy in the Bible saying Jesus would come from Nazareth. The Messiah would come from Nazareth. But the word Nazareth is based on a Hebrew root, and that root being the, the Hebrew root Nazar. And this is very significant because in Isaiah chapter 11, in a passage about Messiah, verses 1 and 2, we read this. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And the word highlighted there, I hope you can see yeah, the contrast okay on this, this uh, monitor. Good. The word highlighted there branch is that Hebrew word Natsar. So get this. By virtue of being born in Nazareth, he would be called for all history Jesus of Nazareth or the Nazarene. And Matthew, in his prophecy in Matthew chapter 2, is connecting the fact that the Messiah would be called the Nazar, the branch, to the fact that Jesus is, by virtue of where he lives, called one who is of the branch, the Nazarene. And so, ascribes to Jesus this place of birth and likewise this position 
this prophetic fulfillment of Jesus of Nazareth as that branch who would come out of the root of Jesse. Now, Jesse, we know to be David's father, and so he would come from, from the line of David, which is another prophetic fulfillment we'll talk about in a moment. So that's one of those interesting things. I, I, I hope that um, when you read the Bible and, and you come across these prophetic fulfillments, you don't just read it and say, okay, that's interesting, but you go find it. Go find that prophetic fulfillment. And if you've ever done so, this would have been one that, that would have kind of maybe tripped you up a little bit. And this can give you some insight into where, where that's found. Why it is that, that Matthew interpreted that it would be prophesied that he would be called a Nazarene. Uh, our next of several considerations is found in verse 27. So in verse 26, the angel Gabriel is sent unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And then verse 27 says that he was sent to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, there's several prophetic concepts in this verse that we're going to talk about. The first one being that Mary is a virgin. Now, uh, I give you the definition in the Greek word, behind the English word, the word virgin there, meaning a, a woman who has never had intercourse with a man. Um, it's my desire to, to typically leave the service with confidence that everybody under the sound of my voice, to the best of my ability, generally understands what I tried to say. And then, of course, parents, you filter the rest down to your children. And this, this is one of those areas where, to whatever degree you're comfortable and in your timetable and your choosing, you filter the concept of what it means that a woman is a virgin down to your children. And I leave that to you uh, to, to explain that concept in your way and in your time according to uh, the Lord's leading. It's sufficient to say, however, as we mentioned last week, that biologically speaking, without the aid of, of you know, things that, that we would have today, modern technologies, it is physically impossible for a virgin to be pregnant with a baby. And that's the point, is that this would be something that is physically, biologically impossible to have come about. Now, the very physical impossibility being what it is, God chose to use a virgin birth as the very special and unique sign by which Messiah would come into the history of mankind, by which Messiah would be brought into the world. Now, the virgin birth has been attacked greatly in, in recent years. Uh, they would go back to the Hebrew and say, well, the word in the Hebrew doesn't have to mean virgin. It doesn't mean that, that, that she was actually a virgin. And, and yet the Greek word is not ambiguous at all. It, it, it means what it means. And the fact of the virgin birth is not just some side point to Jesus Christ's birth. It has true theological significance that we'll talk about in just a minute. The prophecy of the virgin birth came in the days of King Ahaz. We read about it in Isaiah chapter 7. He gave a very special prophecy. I'll read it in just a moment. King Ahaz, uh, a king in Israel, and he, uh, excuse me, a king in Judah, when, when the northern tribes and the southern tribes had been separated, he was the king of the southern tribe of, tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the kingdom called Judah. The king of Israel and the king of Damascus had come together and had made a league and were now going to attack Jerusalem. And as they were doing so, Isaiah came to King Ahaz, the king of Judah, and promised him that, that he would be safe, that the nation would be safe, and was assuring him. And as he assured him, he asked 
Ahaz. The Lord asked Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah to ask for a sign. Ask for a sign, he said, in heaven above or, or here on the earth below that this is going to come to pass and I will give you that sign. Well, Ahaz got a little bit self-righteous here. He said, oh, no, 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 no. I dare not tempt the Lord. I'm not going to ask the Lord for a sign. Well, it's one thing when God says something like with Zacharias and he, he expects you to believe it. But when God comes to you and says, ask of me a sign, it's presumptuous of you to say no to that. And that's what Ahaz did. And we pick up in verse 11 of Isaiah 7. Isaiah says, ask thee a sign and the, uh, of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, hear ye now, O house of David. This is Isaiah speaking. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now here we see one of those, those places that, one of the reasons why I really appreciate the King James Version as you read it in the English is because of this right here. You notice two sections that are highlighted. You see that first section, ask thee a sign. And then that second section, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. You know, people always say, what, why the these and the thous in the King James? It's old, it's archaic, I can't understand it. But it's not just there to be there. You notice that the King James does use you and your. So you and your were there. It was a part of the language. They didn't have to use the thee and the thou, but they did. And the reason why the thee and the thou and the yous and the yours are there is to designate pronouns. In Hebrew and in Greek, as in many languages, there is a singular and a plural of the second person pronoun. So the second person pronoun is you or your, but there's a singular and there's a plural. So in most languages, you can say uh, to one person, how are you doing? And it would be a different pronoun than if I asked a group, how y'all doing today? Right? The y'all, as we would say it in, in southern English at least, would, would imply that I am speaking to a group. Whereas if I said, Mason, how are you doing? I'm speaking to him. We don't have a singular and a plural pronoun in English. It's all the same, you. Well, we used to. It used to be the was singular and you was plural. So in the King James, when you're reading thee or thou, you're reading a singular pronoun, a person talking to one other person. When you read you, your, or ye, you're, you're getting a plural pronoun. You're, 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 the person is speaking to a group, two or more people. And that's very helpful at times. It doesn't come up all that often where it it's, makes a really big difference, but at times it does. A couple of times where Jesus is speaking, once in John uh, to, to Nathaniel, there's a pronoun change. And here we see a pronoun change, don't we? Isaiah comes up to the king and he says, ask thee a sign of me. You, king, ask me a sign. King says, no, 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 I'm not going to tempt the Lord. And then Isaiah says, you're wearying the Lord. Tell you what, the Lord's going to show you a sign. Isaiah's no longer just speaking to the king. He's speaking to the entire house of David. He's speaking to all who will read. He's speaking to a broader group now. He says, I'm going to give a sign to all. I'm going to, I'm going to give a sign to you, and it's not just going to be for you, king. It's going to be for you, house of David, a virgin shall conceive. And this is where we understand that this prophecy is going to be much bigger than just this one incident. 
because our scope just got a lot bigger. And to me, that's fascinating. I love that. And unless you know the original languages and you're willing to kind of go back and look in a concordance or something, that's something that the King James does for you that no other translation will do. And I appreciate that because it means I don't have to dig into my Greek to see those subtleties, which in this case really do make a difference. So the sign was this. A virgin would conceive and would bring forth a son, and the son's name would be Emmanuel. Now, we don't have the interpretation here because, of course, Isaiah is speaking in Hebrew and Ahaz knew what he was saying. But we do have it in the New Testament. Emmanuel, God with us. His name would be God with us. He would be God with men. That is so significant that when this virgin would conceive, there would be a 100% certainty that the child that was born of that woman who had never known a man would be God in flesh, would be the Son of God. It would immediately place him in, in this special realm. There would be no second guessing. You wouldn't have to wonder, is this really the Messiah? Is this really the one we're waiting for? He is it. He was born of a virgin. The sign has been fulfilled. This is God in flesh. But there's a deeper theological truth here. I, I reference you to verse 35 of the passage, and then we'll jump back. The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, what I, the, my, my, uh, my interpretation here is not a consensus interpretation. It's not something that everyone across the board agrees with. But I, I feel very confident in this interpretation. Um, but, you know, it's, it's uh, not something where if you disagree with me, this is, this is all that big of a problem. When the virgin would conceive, it was explained that the power of the highest would produce this life within her. So that the child would rightly be called not just the Son of Man, but also the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. By virtue of Mary being conceived of the Holy Ghost, this child would be God himself, and that is established. But it is also true that this child would be a man, 100% God, 100% man. Now this is not the part where there's not consensus. This is, this is orthodox. 100% God, 100% man. It's not just a man that had some divine attributes. It's not just a God that had, taken, that had taken on some human attributes. A man who is also God. 100% man, 100% God. We call it in theological terms the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. Now Jesus, as we consider him being 100% divine, 100% human, he didn't have a human father. And this, I believe, is theologically significant. When Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Bible says that when Adam rebelled, man died. That we are all dead in Adam. It's the doctrine of original sin. That the sin of Adam is passed down from generation to generation so that all have sinned. Because in Adam all died. And that's very significant because the reality of us all dying in Adam means that in Christ we can all be made alive. The first Adam brought death. The last Adam can bring life. The first Adam brought death to all humanity. 
the last Adam makes provision for all humanity to be saved if they will but receive it. And so as we consider that important element, that it was in Adam that we are dead, not Eve's actions necessarily. She was deceived. Adam rebelled. Adam chose to partake. Spiritually speaking, the fallen sin nature introduced through Adam's sin is passed down through the father. From Adam to his children. From the father to the children. Now, if this is indeed the case, that the sin nature is passed down through the paternal line, which would make sense from the, the fact that Adam was the one who sinned, that man is the head of the home, uh, and, and the head of the wife, and the head of the marriage, then that Jesus did not have a human father, a biological father, would allow him to judicially and righteously bypass the sin nature while still being 100% human. So that he was and is the only man ever born who did not have a sin nature because he did not have a human father. So he could judiciously, within the design of God, bypass the sin nature. And if that is indeed the case, then the virgin birth does not just become an interesting sign. It becomes theologically imperative, doesn't it? He had to bypass the sin nature somehow. And by bypassing the paternal contribution to humanity, he has bypassed the sin nature that is passed down from Adam through. Because he, he bypassed Adam's sin, though he is still in Adam through Eve, so that he's still a man. I mean, through Mary, I mean, so that he's still a man. So the virgin birth. Let's not allow that doctrine to just be brushed aside. Let's not allow that to just be overlooked. It establishes 100% certainty that Jesus is the Messiah, and it establishes the reality that he could bypass the sin nature. Very important. Third, this morning, back to verse 27. To a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph. I love to see how God weaves history together. Have you ever stopped to try to imagine? I mean, it's a mind-blowing concept that a sovereign God who also allows free will is somehow weaving all of this history together so that it just brings into this beautifully orchestrated concert his perfect will. Even in the midst of all of the wickedness and terrible things that happens, he's still working it together for his perfection and for his good. And it's amazing to see how the fact that Mary was an espoused wife brought about the ideal, the perfect circumstance for what, for what God needed to happen through Jesus Christ. The cultural idea of being espoused or betrothed in the Jewish culture is very different from what we would call engaged. As we try to describe what it means that Mary and Joseph were betrothed, the closest thing we could say today is that they were engaged. But that is nowhere near strong enough to describe the the legal binding that they had. Betrothal was a formal part of the marriage process that brought with it legal obligations, definitive legal obligations. Betrothal, much like marriage ceremonies today, was the point of binding whereby they would actually be considered married, but at that point they had not yet come together. They had not yet come to live together. When a man and woman were betrothed, they were legally bound unto marriage. The betrothal was the moment that the dowry was paid. 
for the wife. So the dowry had been paid. The commitment had already been made. A ceremony had been performed. And then with the betrothal being over, it's kind of like, okay, now we've got a guaranteed marriage here. Now we can plan for the, the, the celebration. And they would plan for the celebration. The husband would go home and he would prepare a house. He would prepare a living place. He wouldn't do that until he had a betrothed wife. And now he's going to go back and he's going to prepare the place for them to live. Which, by the way, has incredible significance to when Jesus Christ says, I go to prepare a place for you, right? That, that he was using all of that marriage language, that we are betrothed to Christ. It doesn't mean we're engaged and we can just throw the ring back at some point as a church. It means that we are legally bound to Christ. It's just he hasn't come for his bride yet. Beautiful picture. One of these days we'll, we'll talk about it in full. So the betrothal had happened. Mary and Joseph were bound together so much so that if they were to separate, it would require the legal documents of a divorce. There would be a legal proceedings and had to have proper grounds for that to happen. They were bound. Now, do you see the beauty here? God needed a virgin. But particularly in that culture, even as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, the concept of raising Messiah as a woman without a husband would have been extremely difficult. She would have needed support. Mary would have needed support, especially in that culture. Woman couldn't just say, well, I'm going to leave the kid with grandma and grandpa, and I'm going to get, go get a job. It doesn't work that way in, in, in that culture, and in most cultures, <laughs> as, as we think about it. So by God choosing a woman who is betrothed, she was already legally bound to a husband, and God, of course, choosing a situation in which there was a just man, a man who would recognize the leading of the Lord and follow through with marrying with, with the marriage ceremony. And so he chooses a woman who is bound and thus cared for. He's not leaving her out to dry, but also is a virgin so that the prophecy can be fulfilled and the theological necessities can be worked out. It's beautiful how God wove it together. And as Luke gives just a few verses here to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, we find in that statement just a concerto written of God weaving beautiful circumstances together to make a perfect circumstance for her and for his, his son, Jesus Christ. So not only were they betrothed, not only was Mary a virgin, but as we consider the next point, the scriptures say that they were of the house of David and thus they were of the tribe of Judah. The significance of Jesus being born in the, of the house of David goes back to a promise God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. We're going to be there in just a couple of weeks in our evening service. So if, you're, if you come in the evening or if you, you follow along online uh, or, or you know, whether on our website or on YouTube, then you'll be able to get a little bit more in depth into the understanding of, of this covenant that God made with David, which we call today the Davidic covenant. But for today, let, let me just briefly summarize the event. David sits in a house in Jerusalem. Hiram, the king of Tyre, had built for him a house. He's sitting in this beautiful house of cedars. He's been given the kingdom. He's been given rest on every side. He sits in his house and he says, why should I be in a house of cedars while God lives in tents? I want to build for God a house. So he expresses his desire to the prophet Nathan. Nathan first says, go and do it as unto the Lord. And then as Nathan is leaving, the Lord speaks to him and says, no, 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 no. Go back, tell David, you may not build me a house. 
And he gives his reasons, because David was a man of war, he was a bloody man, and so he was not going to be allowed to build the house because God wanted his house to be associated with peace, not with war. David was a man associated with war. He was a warrior. He says, I'll give that privilege to your son. I'm going to make your son a man of peace, to rule and reign in a time of peace. But God deeply appreciated the heart of David and the love of David for him. So he says, David, I'm not going to let you build me a house, but I'm going to make you a promise. I will build you a house. And he says this in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So God gives David this very deep promise that the throne of David would be established forever, that there would never fail to be one of David's line on the throne in Judah. It's an extremely blessed promise here. We read earlier in Isaiah 11 verses 1 and 2 that this branch, this Nazar that would come, would come out of the stem of Jesse, right? And so we're seeing this all kind of come together as God weaves history together. Two chapters earlier, Isaiah said this in his prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, probably fairly familiar to you, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and justice from, from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So it is it, very important. Just as it was important that Jesus was born of a virgin, it's very important that Jesus would be born to the house and lineage of David. It was prophesied of in Isaiah. It was promised in 2 Samuel 7 to David that there would never cease to be one on the throne. And if Messiah is the one who's going to rule and reign over Israel, then he has to be on the throne of David. Similar promises are made throughout the prophets. Jeremiah 23, 5. Jeremiah said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice. Ezekiel 34, 23. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. So we see the promise that David would rule and reign over them, that the lineage of David, Messiah had to be of that lineage. And indeed, Luke makes it clear, he was. He was of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David. Both Mary and Joseph, in fact, were of the house of David. We're in that lineage, in that line. One final thing that I want to mention this morning. In verses 32 and 33 of Luke 1, we read this. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. 
in this prophecy, this promise of this Messiah, of who he would be, the text specifically mentions, Gabriel specifically says that he would rule over the house of Jacob forever. Now, I make note of this in relation to a theological controversy, which is quite prevalent in Christian circles today, that if you do any reading, you're going to come across people that have um, this particular direction that they believe, and, and it's called replacement theology. And replacement theology believes, in brief, that the church is to be regarded as Israel by God, so that the church has completely replaced national Israel as God's chosen people, has replaced Israel for all of God's promises, and that he has abandoned his plan to, and any, any of the promises, any of the plans that he promised to Israel have now been transferred over to the church so that there's nothing left for national Israel. It's contended that because the remnant of the nation, nation of Israel was saved in the days of Christ, and due to New Testament teaching that born-again believers are more the children of Abraham by faith than any of the nation of Israel simply by blood, that they are no longer, that Israel no longer has a part in God's program. The nation of Israel no longer has a part in God's program. And so all of the promises made unto Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all of the promises made to Israel are specifically transferred over to the church. But as you look at the broader teaching of, of Scripture, that concept doesn't hold theological water. Now, the Jewish people have throughout history shown themselves to be deeply opposed to Jesus Christ, to the gospel of, of Christ, to the truths of the New Testament. And when you see that, and com when you combine it with the replacement theology, which is growing in popularity today, there comes a natural, in fact, a disdain for the Jewish people, a strong anti-Semitism that looks down on the Jewish people and says these were the ones that killed Messiah, which they did. They said his blood be upon our shoulders. They, they said that to Pilate. And thus they are the ones, uh, and, and they have rejected Messiah, and so God is done with them. Now, the arguments for and against this perspective are quite complex, and we don't really have time today, nor do I think it would serve us well to get into those arguments in this forum. It's more of a forum for study than it is for preaching. It's more of a forum for a lecture, for a college class, than it is for, for a pulpit-type ministry. But it's important that you know that replacement theology lacks the credibility of sound interpretation when it comes to the broadest extent of the Bible's promises. And one of the reasons why that is, is found right here. Now, I'm not saying that if, if, you, if you have any friends who are replacement theologians, or if you have considered it, or if you, you agree with it yourself, that you're, you're a heretic. But I do believe that it is interpretively unsound. The name Jacob is the birth name given to the one, the man who is better known as Israel. Israel was the name change that was given to him by God as he came back from Haran, what we're learning about right now in Sunday school. As he comes back, he wrestles with the Lord. The Lord changes his name to Israel, who becomes the father of the 12 sons that make up the 13 tribes that would become the nation of Israel. 
Joseph being broken up into two tribes, right? Ephraim and Manasseh, so that there were 13 tribes in Israel. And Israel was the father of those 12 sons. Now, Jacob's name was changed to Israel in Genesis 32. I mentioned that already. We read in verses 27 and 28. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. So God tells Jacob, Your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is now Israel. Jacob was a name that, as best we can tell, meant deceiver or supplanter. And indeed he was, was he not? He deceived his brother Esau. He deceived his father Isaac. He was a deceptive man. But as he entered into this covenant with the Lord, the Lord said, your name no longer suits you. I'm going to give you the name Israel, which means prince with God. So it can be said that Israel is the name of spiritual standing. That within the scope of Jacob's relationship with God, God regarded him as Israel. God regarded him as, as this man of, of, of this spiritual covenant of, of a love and obedience to the Lord. And the nation was not called the nation of Jacob. The nation was called the nation of Israel. That was the formal name of the nation. Now, in calling the nation by this name, God is stating that, there were, that they were to be a nation dis, dis, defined by the spiritual standing that Israel had with God, not by Jacob's past, Jacob's history. Now, what's interesting about this name Israel, however, is that there were there are several times in Scripture, in the Old Testament, in the prophecies, where God did not call the nation Israel. He called them Jacob. Hear now, O Jacob. Particularly in my studies in Ezekiel, I found that quite regularly God calls the nation Jacob instead of Israel. Why would God do that? Well, first, the name Jacob highlights the physical blood lineage, the physical man from which they come. That was his birth name. When God wanted to emphasize that they were a physical nation, a physical heritage, he used the name Jacob to remind them of their heritage. But secondly, and more importantly, when God calls the nation Jacob, he's highlighting their character. That they're not living like Israel. They're not living like the man who was a prince with God. They're living like that carnal man. Like that deceitful man. Like the deceiver and the supplanter. They're not living up to the name of the spiritual standing with God that they have. They're living down to the deception and the, the pragmatism and the wickedness that used to be there. And so it's a, a emphasis that God would use to highlight the selfishness and deceit rather than obedience of the nation. He would particularly use the name Jacob when he was speaking to them and rebuking them for their sin. When God wanted to, to, to tell the nation they were not walking in obedience, he would call them Jacob. And what I'd like to emphasize here is that while it can be rightly reset, rightly be said in a spiritual sense that the church is the Israel of God, that we have received many of the blessings of Israel because we are in that right standing with God that, that God used to use Israel to bring about. We have assumed the spiritual favor, spiritual standing in the eyes of God that Israel once had as a nation. 
this does not mean, and indeed it cannot mean, that God does not also have a plan for the nation of Israel. And we see one of those indications in our text today. It is perhaps not too hard of a leap for us as interpreters of God's word to justify and to understand that many of Israel's blessings have transferred to the church. God had intended that the nation of Israel would be a people rightly related unto God so that they could then show the world how to be rightly related unto God. Well, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 tell us that that privilege, that election unto purpose has been transferred to the church so that everybody who enters into the, the church by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ now has that purpose of being rightly related to God so that we can show the rest of the world how to be rightly related to God so that we can show them the blessings of being related to God properly. This responsibility is transferred to the church and it's our privilege to have that right relationship with God. But there would be, in the context of spiritual blessing, no reason for the church to ever be called Jacob. Now, if, if God were to call church, church, his church, the Israel of God or the spiritual Israel, that would make sense, right? But never to call the church Jacob. We're not of the physical lineage, nor are we defined by Jacob's past. But what do we see here? In this prophecy of Messiah, we find the promise that he would rule not over just the house of Israel, but the house of Jacob. The same way that he would come from the house of David. And as we compare Scripture with Scripture, this conclusion is justified time and again. And it culminates in Romans chapter 11. One of these days I'll preach through Romans 9 through 11 and we'll just lay it all out there. I, I just give you little snippets from time to time. But in Romans 11, Paul says this in verses 25 and 26. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, lest you as the church should be built up with pride, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Come into what? Well, into the church. There's a contrast here between Israel and the Gentiles, both of which are coming into the church. And so all Israel shall be saved, he says. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away the unrighteousness of who? Jacob. Of Jacob. There would be many who would try to spiritualize this promise that all Israel shall be saved. Well, Israel's the church. All the church will be saved. You can't do that, though, can you? You just can't do it here. The contrast is not between Israel and the unbelieving world, it's between Israel and the Gentiles, both of whom are being brought into something, the church. And he doesn't say that all of unrighteousness will be taken out of the world, but out of all, the, all of ungodliness out of Jacob. And so he says, all Israel shall be saved. Now, the contrast, blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles can come in. Into what? Into the faith. So blindness is happening to national Israel. They are living in blindness today to the truth because they have rejected it. So it's the natural consequence of rejection of the truth. Until the Gentile world, those that are not of national Israel, come into the church. And it's only for a time we see that here. Because the text says that all Israel shall be saved. Now what is this saying? Improving his point... Um, he quotes a, one of those cumulative prophecies that we talked about. 
found in Isaiah 59, 20, Psalm 14, Isaiah 27, Jeremiah 31, that says that God would send a deliverer and remove the unrighteousness of Jacob, that Jacob's sin would be removed. He appeals to that name Jacob, but what does it mean that all Israel will be saved? And this is something that confuses people from time to time. Does that mean that every per that the Jews are in? Right? That's what they thought in Jesus' day, didn't they? They thought we're in by, we're Abraham's seed. We're in. We're in automatically. That the Jews are in. Well, no, it doesn't. The Jews have rejected Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So the Jews who are, who are living right now, who are following Judaism, who have rejected the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, are, just like the rest of the world that has rejected Jesus Christ, headed toward a sinner's hell. But rather, this teaching is that there's coming a day when the nation of Israel will be positioned in such a place that just as in the days of the Exodus, when the entire nation was redeemed from Egypt, and so the entire nation trusted in the Lord, and the scriptures tell us that plainly, in the same way, there's coming another generation of national Israel who, having been redeemed by the Lord, will all nationally accept him. That there will be a national acceptance of Jesus as their Messiah. And, and we know from prophecy that the day that that will take place will be the day of his second coming. When he delivers Israel from the hand of the Antichrist after the seven years of tribulation and they shall look upon him whom they have pierced, and they shall weep for him, and they will believe on his name. Now, all of that to, to remind us that words are important. And when we see that it is Jacob whom the Messiah would come to redeem, that, that, that means something. So we've seen these five details this morning from the text. Jesus was a Nazarene, born of an espoused version, son of God, son of David, redeemer of Jacob. What do we do with all this information? I've, I've been a little more luxury today, uh, a little bit more than usual. Truly the whole is more than the sum of its parts. As individual parts, we witness how Jesus fulfills several Old Testament prophecies. As individual parts, we, we, we witness the miraculous and divine events that are woven together to make Christ's life and ministry significant. As individual parts, we understand God's faithfulness, not just to David and, and not even just to national Israel, but to us. But as a whole, we see that Jesus is, without a doubt, the one who was promised, the Messiah of God. As a whole, we marvel at the wisdom of God who can indeed weave thousands of years of history and promises together into a culmination of a man named Jesus Christ who can be considered to be the centerpiece of all human history. As a whole, we see God's divine plan from beginning to end revolving around his personal redemption of his fallen creation, not because that creation deserves it, but because he loves that creation. We marvel. And that's what this text ought to make us do. When Mary was done listening to the angel Gabriel, she, was, she marveled. Zecharias will marvel in just a few verses, in a couple of weeks, as he proclaims the glory of the Lord. Elizabeth and Mary will, in the ne next week as we'll read, 
boldly proclaim God's wisdom and God's glory. And that's what it's intended to do. That as we read this, God forbid that we would lose the significance. Oh, yeah, yeah, born of a virgin. Yep, yeah, that's, yeah, we know that. Yeah, espoused to a husband, the lineage of David. What God did in bringing about Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, is just incredible. And this brings us to, to a point of decision, right? The majority of us in this room have accepted Jesus Christ as, as their Savior. But if you have not, here's what you need to know. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means that God is holy and righteous and we are not. And we have fallen short of God's righteous standard. And because we've fallen short of God's righteous standard, the wages of our sin, the payment for our sin is death. Eternal spiritual death, separation from God in a place of torment called hell. But, the Bible says, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What we have considered in detail this morning and considered more surface level last week was the promise of the one who would save the world from their sins. And as Jesus walked upon this earth, he said, as we mentioned already, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He would tell Nicodemus that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, should not die, should not suffer eternal separation from God, but shall rather have eternal life. And that's the promise that is found in Christ. That when we see everything that God wove together and this man who is Jesus Christ, who is without a doubt being born of a virgin, God in flesh, we recognize that his message has authority and that we are accountable to it. And so that when we die, we will either go to heaven, the place of fellowship with the Lord forever, or we will go to hell, a place of eternal separation from God and torment. And the hinge upon which it's decided whether or not we end up in heaven and we, or we end up in hell is not what we do. It's not how hard we try. It's not whether we're a good person, for none is good. We have all sinned. But the, the condition upon which a man receives heaven or receives hell is, to placing, is by placing their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus said in John 18, He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son. So what does that mean? Well, that means the first thing that we do when we marvel at Jesus Christ is that we assure our own hearts. Have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you ever taken that step of admitting to the Lord, I'm a sinner and I cannot get to you, but I, I need you. I accept your son's sacrifice on the cross as sufficient payment for my sin. Would you save me? If you've never done that, I encourage you to make today the day that you do that. That you accept Jesus as your personal Savior. For those of you who are believers today, the majority of you here, it's my prayer that first of all, this examination would help you grow in confidence regarding the truth and consistency of God's word. It's my prayer that when you read this announcement in the scriptures, probably around Christmas next year at least, that it would have a new flavor as you understand the very significance of what happened on this day. But it's also my prayer that it would remind us who it is we serve. That we serve God in flesh. That we call ourselves Christians, 
little Christs, those who are walking the path of the one who has gone before us, whose name is Jesus of Nazareth, and that it would remind us to check our own hearts and make sure that we're following him properly, that we're reflecting him as we ought. Because God wove all of history together to bring us to this one man to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that is worth our sacrifice. That is worth our love. That is worth whatever God would ask of us. So if you're a disciple, follow him as he would have you follow. May we be brought closer to that moment when he was announced, but closer still in love for our Savior, for what God did through him so that we can serve him better. Let's close in prayer.